for looking this morning at Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 4 and reading down to verse 12. But for the sake of context, I'm going to begin back, back in verse 1 and read down to verse 12. Luke 12, beginning in verse 1 and reading down to verse 12. Let me again just briefly uh, pray for us, and you will find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open. Uh, you can find this on page 871. If you're using a church Bible, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would send your word out with great clarity and conviction. We pray that you would lead us to a place of spiritual understanding, that you would send your spirit to give us inner illumination, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us hearts that understand that we might turn and Turn to you and turn to the Lord Jesus and embrace all that he is and all that he has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. We pray, our God, that you would make us to see and hear the Savior this morning, that we might trust him more and grow in him more and be rooted in him and established in the faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 12, beginning in verse 1, and there Luke records for us these words. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man There Jesus is speaking about himself personally, will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, in what is one of the most famous presidential inauguration speeches ever, Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt stood in 1933 and addressed uh, probably tens of millions of Americans over the, the radio. And in that very famous inaugural address, he said these words, these now um, often repeated and well-known words, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Well, to understand the importance of Roosevelt's inaugural address, you have to understand that he said that right as America was in the very depths of the Great Depression. Uh, They would not pull out for another six years out of the Great Depression, Uh, People were paralyzed. They were terrified. They didn't know if this country would ever pull out of the Great Depression. It was those words that Roosevelt 
stated to the American people that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself that, that animated the American people to follow him, to believe that there was hope, that they were going to get out of this. And, you know, how often we've heard that phrase in our lives. And yet, when we come to a passage uh, like the one in front of us this morning, and we hear everything that Jesus says, and it's, it's almost like a riddle. The Savior at one and the same time says, uh, there's nothing to fear at all. Don't fear men. And he says, there's nothing to fear except God himself. He says, don't fear men who can kill the body. He says, fear God, who after he has killed can destroy soul and body in hell. And then he says, don't be afraid. Well, which is it? Was Jesus contradicting himself or was he making a, a statement in which he used the word fear and the idea of fear in a multiplicity of ways? Well, clearly it is the latter. And notice that he has most recently been uncovering hypocrisy. Jesus has pronounced those six woes on the Pharisees and on the lawyers. He has drawn out in very clear terms what religious hypocrisy looks like. And, and the people start getting excited that here is a potential religious champion. It's very interesting. Jesus takes on the religious leaders of his day in a way that no one does. He uncovers and rips off the mask of their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness, their love of the praise of men, their love of money, their love of pretense, their wicked hearts, and everything else going on inside of them and, and how they deceive the people and they lead the people astray. And notice what Luke says. He says, in the meantime, many thousands of the people had gathered together so that they were trampling one another. Now, um, there were these surges in the Savior's ministry. Uh, it was not always large crowds. Um, it would not be large crowds when he hung on the cross. Um, the same people crying out, uh, Hosanna to the son of David, were most likely there as the crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Um, and yet, there were times where Jesus was garnering these large crowds because uh, the people wanted a religious champion. They wanted a religious leader. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted, they wanted in their mind, someone that would champion the cause of the people. Uh, they wanted a revolutionary. And so Jesus has, has gathered, in a sense you could say inadvertently, has gathered many thousands of people who are, in a sense, cheering him on now for uncovering the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And so Jesus does what Jesus is so good at, and he takes the opportunity to warn the people and his own disciples not to fall into the trap of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Um, in very, one very real sense, Jesus is telling uh, his disciples to be afraid of hypocrisy. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, before we look at this in depth, why does Jesus transition into this section on fear right after giving us this scathing uh, review of what religious hypocrisy looks like? I think that Jesus knows that there's a temptation anytime um, something gets movement and momentum and people start to gain interest, there is a great temptation for those involved in that movement to start to want to please men or do things for the applause of men or do things before the face of men. I think Jesus 
is in a sense telling his disciples, beware of what's in your hearts. Beware as these crowds grow. Beware of starting to cater to them and becoming just like the Pharisees. Um, In my short Christian life, I have seen, and, and you have seen, so many fall after popularity has risen in the church. Numbers grow, popularity grows, great falls happen. Um, it happened to David and Solomon. You know, it was when Solomon's kingdom was at its greatest that his heart was given over to pagan women and turned away from the Lord and back to idolatry. And so Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And he warns his disciples there in that section that we looked at last time together that they are to fear falling into the snare of religious hypocrisy, what the Pharisees were living in. Now, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see Jesus warning his disciples not to fear men, and then we're going to see him charging them to fear God. He's going to say, don't fear men who, after they've killed you, can do nothing else to you, but I'm going to tell you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to destroy both soul and body in hell. J. Gretchen Machen, who was a man who knew great trials in his life, uh, he took on almost single-handedly the liberalism of a century ago in the church. In fact, I don't know if you know this, behind Machen's greatest opponent in America, Harry Fosdick, was uh, Rockefeller, the billionaire, who was funding the liberal agenda against Machen. It's actually astonishing to think about the richest man in American history to date at that period was afraid of a poor Presbyterian conservative scholar who didn't have big money behind him, didn't have big crowds behind him. And yet Machen, as he reflected on this saying here where Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body and then have nothing more they can do. But fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Notice that Machen says this. These words were not spoken by Jonathan Edwards. They were not spoken by Cotton Mather. He was a New England Puritan, a severe one. They were not spoken by Calvin or Augustine. They were not spoken by the Apostle Paul. They were spoken by Jesus. Please let that sink in today. It has come... It has come heavy upon me how many people just want to hear sweet, easy, enjoyable things from ministers. This is why the Apostle Paul says that people would heap up teachers because they have itching ears. They want to hear, oh, you you are so special and so sweet and everything's so great and just comfort, 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 comfort. And Jesus comes the Savior who brings gospel comfort, who brings all the grace of God, who brings redemption full and free, who brings pardon, who comes to give us, as we heard this morning, rest for our souls. And he says, don't fear men, but fear the one that can throw you into hell. Um, You and I need that, and we need to listen to it, and we need it to sink down into our ears and hearts, and we need to come to terms with the fact that Jesus thought it important enough to warn his disciples not to fear men, but to fear God. Now, what is he saying here? Um, The Proverbs 
tell us that the fear of man is a snare. I was thinking about this, how much of our lives have been spent wondering what other people think about us. I mean, even when we're little children, it's in our hearts when we're very little. We wonder what people think about us. We wonder about our image. We wonder, are they going to like me? Is this... is is what I am as a Christian going to offend them? Is that, are they not going to talk to me? Are they going to be rude? Are they going to turn away the next time? Are they going to persecute me? There's a thousand ways that those questions come running through our minds. And, and you know, it's really interesting. So much of our lives are controlled by that. This week, I had the opportunity of witnessing to a guy I've known for quite a while who I think likes me. I don't know. I think he does. And, and over the years, we've sort of, and it's a business relationship, and we've cut up and joked a lot, and it's been a burden to me that I need to witness to him. And so um, we were outside, and it was 105 degrees, and he was talking about how hot it was, and I said, well, yeah, hell's going to be a lot hotter than this. And uh, he said, yeah, but there are no bodies in hell. And I said, no, there are plenty of bodies in hell. <laughs> and the conversation went deeper and deeper, and I felt inside me, I don't want you not to like me rather than, I don't want you to perish. I felt inside the whole time, and by God's grace, I got the gospel to my friend, but I felt inside, I want you to like me. I don't want this to affect our relationship. Jesus knows that's how it works. Uh, J.C. Ryle says that people are like sheep. They will just go after whatever. If today Roman Catholicism is popular, Ryle says, then everybody will become Roman Catholic. If tomorrow Islam is popular, then the masses of people will become Islamic. That's how it works. That's how our world works. Because men and women, starting with us, starting with me, fear people, and the fear of man is a snare. And Jesus is saying, look, don't be afraid of people. Here's, Here's the amazing thing. This is not sort of like a pep talk from the Savior. He's not saying, hey, you know what? You're really awesome. People should like you, so don't worry about them. That's kind of the way our society tries to deal with the fear of man. They say, don't let anybody put you down. You are so special. And Jesus doesn't say that. He says, do not fear man who can kill the body and then has nothing else that he can do. But fear him who, after he has killed, has power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And then Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a coin, and yet your father knows? And yet you are greater than all the sparrows. Do not fear. Now, Jesus himself exhibited for us what it looks like to fear the Lord. He is the Lord, and yet he feared God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that when he was in the garden, and, and the Father put the cup in front of him, and he was crying out to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And there, there was another time as he got close to the cross, and Jesus said to his disciples, uh, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. That, that that he was so pressed down with agony over the prospect of having the wrath of God poured out on him that it was pressing down on his conscience. And, and he had to battle, as a sense, fear. And the writer of Hebrews says, uh, in the days of his flesh, speaking about Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, 
he was heard because of his godly fear. So how did Jesus press through all the opposition? How did Jesus press through the, own, the forsaking of his own disciples? How did Jesus press through the denial of Peter, the betrayal of Judas? How did he press through Roman legions of soldiers coming at him, all the physical torment he, he endured, and then all the powers of hell let loose on him, and then the wrath of God poured out on him on the cross? How, how did Jesus endure that? He did it by living and praying and walking in godly fear. He made the living God, the object of his affection, and he was not swayed by the opinions of men. Now, look, again, we are going to go through our lives and we will waver with fearing men. Jesus never wavered. Never once did he fear man. We will be on that roller coaster until we are in glory. And yet, as we see what he did, always having God before him, always having his father before him, what does it mean? What does it mean to move from the fear of men to the fear of God? Well, Isaiah gives us a little foretaste into this. Isaiah and all the prophets, very interesting, because sometimes we think about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel as if they just had a metal rod shoved down their back and, you know, they're just like going out there like the angry guy with the, with the sandwich board sign calling everybody to repent. That's how we envision the prophets. And they're not afraid of anything. They're not afraid of anyone. And that's not the case at all. God has to tell Jeremiah, don't fear their faces. Jeremiah was in jeopardy of fearing the faces of the people to whom God sent him in the church, fearing the assembly. Isaiah seems to have struggled. And the Lord says through him in Isaiah 2.22, listen to this, stop regarding man. I love this, by the way. This is one of the best verses in the Bible. The Lord says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. I want you to think about that. The person that you might fear the most, worry the most about what they think about you, they're just, God's just keeping them alive with some breath in their nostrils. That's it. It's all they are. It's all you are. That's all I am. Don't fear man. Isaiah says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. What account is he? And then Isaiah comes all the way to the end of the book. And in chapter 40, he tells us what Yahweh's like. He tells us what the covenant Lord's like. Says, the Lord says, to whom then will you liken me? What, what image will you give to me? Who's going to ever teach me anything that it should be repaid him? And then Isaiah says about the Lord, that he is the infinite God who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. Doesn't have a hand, it's a metaphor. He holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. The nations are a drop in a bucket. I want you to think about this. The God who you worship and serve, the God you trust for redemption, the God you profess to believe in, before him, the infinite God, all the nations from all time are just like a drop of water running down the side of a bucket. Nothing. Isaiah says he calculates the dust of the earth in a measure. He stretches out the heavens like a tent curtain. He calls all the stars by name. Not one of them's missing. He is infinite in majesty and glory. So great is this God that Job, who was one of the godliest men who ever lived on the face of the earth, says at the end of the book, 
I have heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. I put my hand over my mouth and I repent in dust and ashes. And then that God comes in the person of Jesus and he stands on a boat with the disciples and tells them where to cast cast their nets. And they get a great catch and Simon Peter falls down and says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You see, God is creating in his people something of a sense of why we should fear him. Now, that fear is not sort of a walking around paralyzed that every single thing we do, we're going to be crushed and then damned to hell forever. That's not what Jesus is saying. Notice that no sooner does Jesus say, I will tell you who to fear, verse 5, Fear him who after he has killed his authority to cast into hell. He says, yes, fear him. Then notice verse six, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? All the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. Here's what I think he's saying as he admonishes us now to fear God. When we place our affections, interests, desires, Um, When we live our lives um, constantly before men, for the praise of men, fearing men, worrying about what people think, rather than before God, we forget two things. We forget two things. And these are the two things necessary to fear God. One, we forget that God is the almighty God who sends people to hell. Notice Jesus doesn't say people send themselves to hell. He says, fear him who after he has killed has authority or power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And then the second thing he says is, don't fear because he loves you and he cares for you and you're his people and he knows all the hairs of your head and his thoughts towards you are more than can be numbered, David says. If I could recount them, they're more than the hairs of my head. How precious are your thoughts toward me, O God? God has a special love and care for his people who he's redeeming in Christ. Now, That means if I walk through life and I remember those two things and I remember that everyone that I see and meet is going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. Um, By the way, Machen um, had this great quote where he said, if anyone didn't entertain the religion of the day, it was Jesus. Everything he ever taught had eternity stamped on it. Everything Jesus ever taught had the mark of heaven or hell. Um, You know, I almost find it funny. I don't know if you guys have ever read modern writers who want to say, you know, well, I don't like Paul, or I I, I just like Jesus. Um, If you go through the Gospels, every parable, it's frightening. Wheat and tear, they look the same. At the end of the age, the tares are going to be plucked up and thrown into the fire, Jesus says. Um, the sheep and the goats. He's going to separate them at the end of the age. He's going to welcome the sheep into his everlasting kingdom. He's going to say to the goats, depart from me into the everlasting fire. This is Jesus again. This is not Paul. This is not Moses. This is the Redeemer. And what he's teaching us is that a proper fear of God acknowledges that God is sovereign over all things, has all power, is the great judge of all the earth. He's not capricious. He's not... He's not gleefully sending people to hell. He is, he is exacting justice against those of us who have sinned against him. This is why R.C. Sproul used to say that our sin 
is cosmic treason against the God of heaven. And he ought to pour out all of his judgment on us. But notice, notice what Jesus says. A proper sense of understanding the fear of God in my heart is not just getting that God sends men and women to hell forever, but understanding that he has redeemed me, that Christ has come and died for me, that he has taken my rebellion on himself, he has taken my sin on himself, he has taken the punishment I deserve on himself, so that Jesus can at one and the same time say, fear God and don't be afraid. Isn't that beautiful? He's not saying live in a constant state in which you fear a certain judgment for yourself. He's saying, look, the same God who can and will send men and women to hell forever is the same God who has loved his people, who has sent me. Think about this. Jesus is only saying these things because he's making his way to the cross so that men and women would trust him. You know, all the judgment and wrath in the Old Testament, all of it, and there's a lot of it, and there's a lot more in the New Testament, so don't fall into that trap either. There's a ton in the book of Revelation. There's a ton in the Gospels. There's a ton in First and Second Thessalonians. All the wrath and all the judgment that's revealed in the scriptures is all because of Jesus. Don't miss this. It's all because of Jesus. Because if there was no hope of redemption, there would be no need to warn men and women of the judgment to come. Same principle we see in Jonah, right? Jonah goes into Nineveh, and he cries out, 40 days, and Nineveh is destroyed. What's the point of that? The people repent. Jonah said, I knew that you were gracious and merciful. I knew that you were a God who would have mercy on people. He didn't want God to have mercy on the Ninevites. And yet, the very point of God sending Jonah to tell them about the judgment to come was so that they would flee from the wrath to come. And they did, and they received grace and mercy And I assume the Ninevites are in glory right now. That's absolutely astonishing. Now, it seems to me that you have two things at work here in what Jesus says to us here. First, you have him contrasting the fear of men with the fear of God. We will never get over the fear of men until we place on the scales of our souls the fear of God. Isaiah actually says, and I love this, Isaiah says that the fear of the Lord is God's special treasure for his children. Oh, let that sink in this morning. The fear of the Lord is God's special treasure, Isaiah says, for his people. He has reserved this special gift for his people. And and when that's put on the scales of what motivates us in our hearts in our minds, when that, when that is the consuming and controlling factor, then the fear of man diminishes and the snare goes away. You see this principle so beautifully in the life of the apostles. You know, uh, what enabled the apostles to uh, be beaten by Ananias and Caiaphas and the very people who, who beat and condemned Jesus uh, in, in earlier in the Gospels in the book of Acts? What enables Peter who betrayed Jesus? Note, remember, Jesus is outside the palace. I'm sorry, denying, denying the Lord Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Cursing to a little slave girl, afraid of the people, fear of man controlling him. What enables him in 50 days to stand inside that same palace and say to the very people who have scourged him, we cannot help 
but speak in this name. We cannot help but speak the things we have seen and heard. What happened to Peter? Well, God, by the Spirit, filled his heart with the fear of God and enabled him to understand the weightier motive and that what he had done in fearing men was a grievous sin. He wept. His heart was healed. He was restored. He was empowered. And he had a different principle animating him. Now, notice um, Jesus is going to segue now into this uh, second half of this section. And he's going to talk about the place of witnessing. He's going to tell us what role the fear of man and the fear of God have with our witness. Because at the end of the day, the great danger that we face is that we live our lives so paralyzed by the fear of men that we are ineffective in telling others about Christ. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, I've redeemed you. I care for you. I know you by name. Fear God who can throw soul and body in hell. Know that all men are subject to his judgments and go and be fruitful witnesses so that others may know the grace and mercy that you know. Notice that Jesus says, um, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, that's a frightening thought. And, and if you're dealing honestly with your heart this morning and you're, you're saying, man, that is a frightening thought. To hear the Savior say, whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God in heaven. Elsewhere he says, I will deny. Um, and that's frightening, isn't it? Because there have been all those times when we've acted just like Peter. Been all those times when we should have spoken and we didn't. We, we feel our weaknesses and our frailties. But there's comfort. Peter denied Jesus three times. And yet he was restored, and he was strengthened, and he was renewed, and he was made useful again. And God restores us and strengthens us and makes us useful again. And notice what Jesus says. Essentially, he says here, even though that principle is true, even though those who acknowledge Christ before men will be acknowledged on the day of judgment, those who deny him before men will be denied, Notice what he says in verse 10, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. He's, he is building into that very, very searching statement the prospect and the hope of forgiveness for those who have failed. He's saying, even if someone were to say a harsh word against me personally, if he would turn, he would be forgiven. But Jesus says, and now he brings up what we call the unforgivable sin, the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, um, I debated whether to go into this or not. I had a friend reach out to me the other day and said, a friend of mine and I are debating suicide and wonder if that's the unforgivable sin. Um, I hesitated to respond for obvious pastoral reasons, not knowing where this person is. Um, remember, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were saying incredibly wicked things about Jesus. They were watching him perform all his miracles. And instead of recognizing that the Holy Spirit was bringing the kingdom of God, and here was the king, here was the redeemer, here's the Messiah, they were saying he cast out demons by Beelzebub. 
the ruler of the demons. And what Jesus is saying is, if anyone sees and knows who he is, sees his power in the scriptures, recognizes that he is God manifest in the flesh, has, has that clear witness borne out before him or her under the preaching of the word, and they reject him under the guise that whoever he is and whatever he does, he does by evil powers and forces, it will not be forgiven him. Jesus is bringing a railing accusation against his enemies. He's, he's saying, that's it. That's the, that's the sin leading unto death. And, and uh, a purposeful rejection of Jesus. Uh, I've seen this again in my life. Um, I worked at a restaurant 15, 17 years ago, and um, I was trying to witness to a kid, and he had grown up in a Christian home and had strayed like I had for so long, and, um, and he was saying, well, I don't believe, I'm not going to believe in a Savior that doesn't save everybody. And I said, well, you know, God doesn't have to save anyone. He, there's no obligation on God to save anyone. And those that Christ saves and God saves sovereignly, he does according to his, his good pleasure. And he said, I can't believe I can't believe in a God like that. And I, I cited, and I'm not even sure why I did, where Jesus said, you know, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, and that in re- redeeming some, there would be division in homes, that he wasn't this just great, you know, universalistic Savior, and we're all good, and we're all just rocking our way to heaven. And uh, I'll never forget this kid said, it's the only time I've ever heard anybody say it, he said, that sounds like Satan. And I'll never forget in my soul thinking, this guy has probably committed the very thing Jesus has said here, that if you speak a word against the Spirit and the work of God and the seal of God and the, the verifiable truth about the Lord Jesus, that the Spirit of God rested on him, that he is the only Redeemer, the only Savior, um, there's no hope of redemption. There's hope, though. There's hope for anyone who will turn to the Lord Jesus and trust in him. Here's what I want to say this morning as we consider these weighty things. What do I do when I realize that I live too much fearing men and not enough fearing God? What do I do? I fix my eyes on Christ crucified. The old hymn writer said, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here can view its nature rightly. Here its guilt can estimate. We look at the cross, we see... We see the weightiness of sin. We see the depths of depravity. And yet, we see the great love and mercy and kindness, the unsearchable riches of Jesus, that he stood in our place, that he took that for us, that he said, I will take the wrath they deserve. I will go through the flame. I will go through the fire. I will endure hell, as it were, for them. Think about it. The one who said, fear him, who has the power to throw into hell, said, I will throw myself under the hell of God's wrath for my people. That's the gospel. Because on Judgment Day, I have no hope of escaping that wrath apart from being in the one who endured it for me on the cross. Um, You know, when we start to realize that, we, we start to realize that Christ is everything, and we start to realize that the gospel is everything. And we start to realize that the cross, at the cross, everything converges and all the grace and mercy becomes ours. And, and we see he does love us more than the birds. 
He loves you more than the sparrows. He knows all the hairs on your head. He knows everything about you intimately. He cares about you more than you could ever care about yourself. Isn't that a comforting thought? How do I know that the God who can send soul and body to hell forever loves you and cares about you more than you could ever love or care about yourself? How do I know that? I know it for myself because I see that he gave his son for me. Now, Charles Spurgeon had those great words of ways of capturing things. He said, when I look at the cross, it's almost as if God loves me more than he loved his son. If you're one of those logicians, please listen to how carefully that was worded. When I look at the cross, it's almost as if God loved me more than he loved his son. Now, I don't know about you, but I desperately need this. I need this every day in my life. First book I ever read as a Christian, um, I had a little bookshelf. I had about 10 books, maybe 15 books that my parents had given me, and I had taken. They were in the trunk of my car all junked up uh, through all the years of rebellion. And I would wake up every morning, and I would look at this little bookshelf. And for days or weeks, my eyes would be drawn to one book in particular. It was a book by John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, and, and it's a little book called The Fear of God. And one day I, I said, I'm going to read that. I, I don't even know why I read that. One of the most formative books I've ever read in my life. And, and God began to impress into, into me that listening to what Jesus says here, striving to be people who know what it is to live in that reverence and awe with the sense of the power and the majesty, the terribleness, the greatness, the, the mercy, the love, the kindness, the riches of the depths of the infinite God, living in that and walking in paths of righteousness by his grace, that that's everything. Um, I called my mom, who's now with the Lord, and one of the first conversations I had with my mom after I was converted, I'd read Bunyan's little book, and I really, if, please read that book. It's very short. It would be well worth spending whatever time of your life reading that. And, and I said to my mom, I said, Mom, I know what it is to fear the Lord now. And she said, that's what your dad and I were praying for you all these years. And you know what I came to realize? And, and I want to press this on us this morning. There is nothing that you need more And there's nothing that I need more. There's nothing that your children need more. There is absolutely nothing that your parents or your cousins or your siblings or your friends or your neighbors or anybody else, coworkers, there's nothing that they need more than the fear of God in their souls. That's it. That's everything. And it comes all through Jesus Christ crucified and risen. It comes all by the outpouring of his spirit. It comes all by the ministry of his word. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning as you seek to balance that principle. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear except to fear God and not be afraid as you live your life under his mercy and grace in Jesus. Um, I hope that you'll grow in the fear of the Lord as well. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I am so weak, and we are weak, and we are frail in our hearts and in our minds, and we thank you and praise you for every word that you have breathed out. We thank you for this portion of scripture. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take these truths and that you would work them deep into our minds and hearts. We pray that you would give us a great love for 
um, both uh, the majesty of God and the mercy of God. We pray that you would fix our eyes back on the cross to where you bore the wrath of God for our sin, that we might know what it is to fear God and not to fear men, and what it is to know that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. Our God, would you please press those things in us and work your fear into our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.